And right now, would you thank God that Jesus Christ is alive and victorious? Thank him for Jesus. ask God to work in Holy Spirit power in our government that as he calls us to pray for our leaders we would particularly would you pray for a newly appointed speaker of the house Mike Johnson has a strong profession of faith as a brother in Christ pray that God would fill him with the Holy Spirit and do a work of awakening and resurrection power in the places of our government that need to be empowered by Christ. Pray for our government leaders. Pray for your one. That, that one who's far from God but close to you, pray for them by name right now that they would be saved. That they'd be raised up to resurrection power and you'd be filled with Holy Spirit power to show them the gospel of Jesus in word and deed. Pray for your one. Pray for the marriages in this room, those joining us online, our community. Pray for the resurrection power of Jesus through the Holy Spirit to raise new life into the homes, the marriages represented in this place. Father, we praise you for Jesus. We praise you that Jesus, though he came and lived and died on a cross, didn't stay dead. That he displayed your victorious power, your unstoppable power by being raised from the dead. We praise you that Jesus is alive right now and rules and reigns and lives among his people by the power of the Holy Spirit. And so, Father, I'm asking you, would you fill us with the Holy Spirit? Fill us with the power of the Holy Spirit. Spirit, be our teacher today. Transform us. Make us more like Christ. Change our lives, Father. I pray we would leave like new men and women because we would be made new, be renewed by the power of Christ in us. Lord, I ask that you would give us grace that as we come before you, we would encounter the mighty throne of heaven and find it to be a throne of grace where we find mercy and help in our time of need. And so, Lord, we give this time of teaching to you. And we pray that you'd be glorified in it. Lord, I pray that you would make every word of yours endure in our hearts and every word that's not motivated by you fall to the ground and be forgotten. May you be glorified in us as we look to you. In Jesus' name we pray. And all of God's people said... 
Amen. Amen. Thank you all for joining me in prayer. And if you have your Bibles, I would invite you to turn to Mark chapter 10. Mark chapter 10. As we continue our series of study here on the Gospel of Mark, we'll pick up at Mark chapter 10. You know, every Saturday morning at St. Peter's Catholic Church, a group of married men would gather together and share the challenges they had as husband and try to encourage each other in their marriages. Well, one week, a man named Giuseppe decided to attend the group for the very first time. And though most of the men were in their mid-40s, Giuseppe was nearly 80 years old. To help him get acquainted to the group, the leader actually said, Hey, Giuseppe, welcome to the group. How, how long have you been married? Well, Giuseppe, Giuseppe answered, Nearly 50 years. Well, the group applauded politely and encouraged him. And the leader asked a quick follow-up question. Hey, since you've been married so long, nearly 50 years, can you share with the group anything that you think has helped you stay married so long? Well, Giuseppe replied, marriage was actually difficult for a while. But for our 25th anniversary, I took my wife to a trip to Italy, and things have been a lot better ever since. Well, the group shared how glad they were that things had improved and how encouraging they felt that marriage could just get better over time. And one member actually chimed in and asked, Giuseppe, what do you have planned for your wife for your 50th anniversary? Giuseppe proudly replied, I'm going back to Italy and pick her up. So... (laughs) That's one way to do it, I guess. Clearly, that's a joke. You don't need me to tell you that's a joke. That's the point I'm trying to make. We know that's a joke because intuitively we know that the goal of marriage is more than just to technically stay married till you die, no matter how you have to do it. But sadly, our culture has distorted marriage to the point that it barely even resembles God's design. And that's not a recent phenomenon. That goes all the way back to the Garden of Eden. It's what we find in our text. Jesus is approached by religious leaders named Pharisees who come to him and ask him a question about divorce. And it's a question that was rooted in their corrupt culture's distorted view of marriage. And in Christ's response, like all of Christ's words, we learn a lot, a lot about how we should approach even this question about divorce and how we can approach God's design and desire for marriage. And so with that in mind, let's read the next passage in our study of the gospel of Mark. Mark chapter 10, beginning in verse 1. And he left there and went to the region of Judea and beyond the Jordan and crowds gathered to him again. And again, as was his custom... He taught them, and Pharisees came up, and in order to test him, asked, Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? He answered them, What did Moses command you? They said, Moses allowed a man to write a certificate of divorce and to send her away. And Jesus said to them, Because of your hardness of heart, he wrote you this commandment. But from the beginning of creation, quote, God made them male and female. And then another quote, Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. And in the house, the disciples asked him again about this matter. And he said to them, whoever divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery against her. And if she divorces her husband and marries another, she commits adultery. This is the word of God 
for us this morning. Okay, so as Jesus is making his way toward Jerusalem, a group of Pharisees come up to him. They ask him a question. Verse 2 says their intention is not to really get the answer to the question. Their intention is to try and trip Jesus up in his response. As a matter of fact, Matthew's account of this provides a detail that Mark leaves out that I think is pertinent for this study. Matthew 19.3, it says, the Pharisees came up to him and tested him by asking And notice, this will show us how somewhat the culture was viewing divorce. Is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? Okay, so they wanted to know if a man could divorce his wife for any cause, any reason whatsoever. And we'll see in just a minute why they may have said that. And I just want you to think, Jesus could have very easily responded with no. You can't divorce your wife for any cause and just moved on down the road. And basically, he does kind of summarize it that way. In verse 9, he says, what God has joined together, let not man separate. In other words, no, you can't just divorce your wife for any cause. But Jesus, it says, is here to teach. He wants us to learn more than just the simple answer to the distorted question of the Pharisees. So how does he respond? What does he want us to learn? Look at verse 3. He answered them, what did Moses command you? And they said, Moses allowed a man to write a certificate of divorce and to send her away. Here's what Jesus does. He goes back to the law of Moses. He asked them, what did Moses say? And they make a reference to the law of Moses that's found in the book of Deuteronomy. They actually are referring to Deuteronomy chapter 24, verse 1, which says this. When a man takes a wife and marries her, if then she finds no favor in his eyes, because he's found some indecency in her, and he writes her a certificate of divorce and puts it in her hand and sends her out of his house, and she departs out of his house, and then it goes on from there. Okay, so this law about divorce was hotly debated among the Jews ever since the moment it was given in the book of Deuteronomy. The surrounding verses, and you guys can look at this on your own time, they have to do with the details about remarriage after divorce and what happens if the second husband wants to also divorce the wife. Can she go back to the first? And so it's some technicalities like that. So it's, it's really a lot about remarriage, not just divorce. But in the culture of the Jews, the fixation on this particular law centered around what it meant For him to find indecency. That word indecency was what they were fixated on. It's a word that's sometimes translated as shame. So there were some Jews who were saying that the law was telling us that if a woman did anything that brought her husband shame, he could rightfully divorce her. And they argued that the indecency or the point of shame had to be something more than just as narrow a lens of sexual or marital infidelity because the law already addressed marital infidelity. And the penalty for marital infidelity was death, not divorce. And so they concluded that a man could justify divorcing his wife for almost anything that he concluded was a shame to him. If she wasn't a good cook or if she wasn't a submissive wife, that could be considered a shame And they thought they could divorce their wives for that. The culture of the Jews, guys, here's what had happened. It had become so corrupted by selfish, hard-hearted, sinful people 
That what they were looking to do was twist God's word and then in turn twist his design for marriage to accommodate their selfish, sinful, hard-hearted desires. And here's what the Pharisees know. They know that if Jesus answers strongly in favor of divorce for any reason, if he says, yeah, you can divorce your wife for any reason, he's going to lose a lot of support from religious conservatives, namely Pharisees and the people in their crowd who can accuse him of playing fast and loose with the law of God. But they also know that if he answers softly or strongly against divorce for any reason, if he says, no, you cannot divorce for any reason, he's going to lose popularity with the majority opinion of the culture because they were believing it's anything that brings a husband shame that's cause for divorce. And that includes King Herod. You might remember in chapter 6, King Herod divorced his first wife so he could marry his brother's wife, which was on the first episode of Ancient Jerry Springer, but that's another point entirely. And, and King Herod did something to John the Baptist who went on public record as being against his divorce. Do you remember what he did? He had him beheaded. And so the Pharisees think this, here's the test. If Jesus answers, yeah, you can get a divorce for any reason, he's going to have the religious conservatives show that he's undercutting the heart of God for marriage. But if he says you can't get a divorce for any reason, he's going on public record that he's against King Herod who had just had John the Baptist beheaded. And so they think they're going to twist it up. Well, what does Jesus do? Look at verse 5. Jesus said to them, he's here to teach, remember? Not just answer trick questions. And he says to them, because of your hardness of heart, he wrote you this commandment. Here's what Jesus is doing. He explains that those commandments in the Old Testament about divorce had a heart. There was the heart of God that knew the heart of men. They were given to the nation of Israel because God in his good heart knew that their hearts were hardened by sin. You see, it seems that God anticipated That there will be hard-hearted husbands who would do terrible things in their marriage. Like send their wife away, not caring about what would happen to her next. And it seems that God anticipating that kind of hard-heartedness wanted to mitigate the impact. You see, if a woman was just sent away without a divorce, she could not get remarried because she was still married. And she couldn't get a job. That's not the economic system that they had. She couldn't buy a house. She couldn't buy land. She couldn't go back to her father's house. She would be completely destitute if she was sent out of her husband's home. And so it seems to me that Jesus is saying here that the provision for divorce in the Old Testament was an act from God's heart, a heart of grace that was intended to protect women in a culture From the sinfulness and hard-heartedness of men. You see, God cares for wives even when their husbands don't. And that's a really good word for many people this morning. God cares for people who have hard-hearted spouses. And I just want to say that. And I pray by the Holy Spirit's power you could hear that. Because if you were in a marriage with a hard-hearted spouse, your life is very hard. And you need to know you have a God who sees you. A God who loves you. A God who cares about you. 
He wants what is good for you. And I know that may not answer every question you have in the midst of a very difficult marriage. I don't pretend to have all of those answers, but that is something you cannot afford to forget. God cares for you. He has not forgotten about you. He wants what is best for you. He is with you. He is for you. But Jesus doesn't leave it there. Notice what he does next. Verse 6. But from the beginning of creation... Quote, God made them male and female. And then another quote, Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. Therefore what God has joined together, let not man separate. Here's what Jesus does. He goes back, he actually goes before the law. He goes to Genesis 1 and Genesis 2. That's where those quotes come from in verse 6. And seven, what Jesus does is he turns the focus from what was allowed in the law concerning divorce because of sin to what God desired concerning marriage before sin entered the picture. Do you see what Jesus is doing there? It's a really subtle thing, but it's an extremely important thing. What Jesus is doing is answering a question that the Pharisees in their culture aren't asking The the question the Pharisees is asking is this, what does God allow? The question God is answering is this, what does God desire? And friends, there's all the difference in the world between those two questions. Did you know that? Let me teach you a little example. A couple years ago, my son came up with one of the most teenage boy ideas I have ever encountered. He wanted to jump off our roof. And I'm not joking. And I'm not saying onto a trampoline or into a pool. He wanted to jump off the roof. He'd been watching some videos of brainless people on the internet who do this thing called parkour. To his underdeveloped teenage boy brain, it looked like a lot of fun. It led him to believe he himself could jump off our own roof in some fashion that would prevent injury and, of course, provide a whole lot of fun. So for what seemed, and I am not exaggerating here, an entire summer... Logan would ask, Dad, can I jump off the roof today? To which I would say, ask your mom. (laughs) To which he would say, I did. Mom says, you're the head of the house and told me to ask you. Nice play, Mom. So then I'd launch into this kind of reply almost every single week of the summer. Son, I love you. God knows I love you. So in his infinite wisdom and grace, he gave me a brain that would work better than yours. And I want you to know that I want you to be able to walk and play with your kids when you're my age. I even want you to live to be my age. I don't want your story to end in such a ridiculous fashion. I can't put this on your headstone, son. Wee! From the roof to the ground. (laughs) was the story of my dash. No, you can't jump off the roof, buddy. I love you too much for that. The point is this. Logan was only interested in one thing. What will my dad allow? 
But that wasn't sufficient for the story. I didn't want him to just know what I would allow. I could have just said no, which most days I did. Refer to our first conversation, son, no. But what I wanted for my son was to understand not what his father would allow, but what his father would desire. I'm not out to ruin his fun. I'm committed to him. I'm committed to him in a way that actually would help him enjoy his one and only life. And guys, that's what Jesus is doing in our text. Jesus answers the questions in a way that directs our attention toward divorce and marriage through the lens, not of what the father will allow, but what he wants us to understand is what the father desires in marriage. You know, there's an absolutely appropriate place to talk about what God allows for divorce. As a matter of fact, Jesus says that a man should not seek to separate what God himself has joined together. He said it, verse nine, God's design for marriage is not that we would be engaged in divorce. Jesus even then goes on to acknowledge, and we'll talk about this in just a second, that there are exceptions to the situation concerning divorce, primarily involving sexual immorality. But that's not what he focuses on. He doesn't get into all the minutia of those things. What he does is he emphasizes his teaching on marriage and divorce almost exclusively on God's good design and not God's allowance. And that should significantly influence. As a matter of fact, as I was praying for this morning, that was the the major change in how to teach this text that God put in my heart. We want to honor the approach of Jesus in his teaching in this text by focusing on what God has designed and desires for marriage rather than fixating on what God might allow in divorce. And so the lion's share of the rest of our time together will be about God's good design. As a matter of fact, that's our big idea for the text this morning. The big idea is this. Jesus is calling us to pursue God's good design for marriage rather than our corrupt culture's distortions. Jesus is calling us to pursue God's good design for marriage rather than our corrupt culture's distortions. Guys, God's desire for marriage, God's desire for your marriage is that you would fix your eyes by faith on Jesus and pursue his good design for marriage, for our marriage, your marriage, for the marriages of this culture. He's formed marriage in a way that has the heart of a father that wants to bring joy and satisfaction and a lifetime of pleasure. But listen, we will never experience God's good design for marriage if we become preoccupied with our corrupted culture's hard-hearted, sinful distortions about what marriage is supposed to be. And so here's what we want to do in our time remaining. Just go through this text and see what Jesus emphasizes as God's good design for marriage. Number one, marriage is designed as the creation of God. Look at verse six. But from the beginning of creation, quote, God made them male and female. Jesus is going right back to Genesis 1, the very beginning, before the law of Moses, before sin enters the picture, and he reminds us that marriage is the creation of God. You know what that means? It means it didn't start as a social convention or a government regulation. It's an institution created by God before the age of human government. Here's what that means. That means that government doesn't have the authority to define marriage. 
God defines marriage because God designed marriage. It doesn't matter what our governing authorities say. They do not have the final word on marriage. God does. It's a distortion of the sinful, hard-hearted age of this culture that would think that anyone other than God has the authority to define what marriage is. We do not follow the distortion of our culture. We follow the mandate and design of God. God decides what marriage is to be. No one else, including you. Here's what I mean by that. Since God designed marriage and he defines marriage and knows how marriage works best, it's not just up to our government to keep their hands off reforming marriage to their whim. It's all on us to keep our hands off our marriages and think we can distort our own marriages or define our own marriages or figure out how we think marriage should work best. The reality is this. He made marriage. He knows how it works best. And if you want to enjoy the blessings of God embedded into marriage, you have to be committed to doing marriage God's way. It means wives must submit to their husbands as is fitting in the Lord because that's what God says in Colossians 3.18. It means that husbands must love their wives like Jesus loved the church and lay down their lives in sacrificial service, pursuing their wife's good above their own rights as men, according to Ephesians 5, 25. And I just want to ask as we move on quickly, what would it look like for you to lay your marriage down before the Lord today and just simply acknowledge this? God, my marriage belongs to you. And would you show me any ways you want me to change how I live in my marriage? My marriage belongs to you. Number two, marriage is designed for one man and one woman. Look at verse six. From the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. Now listen, it's heartbreaking In our culture, and it is genuinely heartbreaking that we need to teach this, but we do need to teach this in this day and age to our children and ourselves. There are only two biological options, and God assigns them at birth. He makes us male or female, and marriage is only for one male and one female. Again, our culture and our government may say otherwise, but the church of Jesus Christ is called to submit to our creator and his mandate for marriage. And no matter how many mainline denominations would reposition themselves on this issue to accommodate the views of our culture, friends, marriage is and always has been and always will be for one man and one woman for one lifetime. And anything other than that, is a distortion of culture to God's design for marriage. Number three, marriage is designed for oneness. We're going to camp out here just a little bit. Verse seven, therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together Let not man separate. I want you to notice something. Verse 7 says the two become one. Verse 8 then says two are now one. Then verse 9 says this union of two to one is something God does, not just something people do. In other words, Jesus is saying God joins people together when they enter into the covenant of marriage. And his design is for oneness. That's why Jesus says we just can't divorce for any reason. 
We shouldn't separate what God has joined together because marriage makes two people into one. And that certainly includes various physical components like sexuality. That's why sexuality is to be enjoyed only within a covenant marriage. Because it is the physical expression of the union between husband and wife. And that physical expression, Jesus just showed us, is connected to a deeply spiritual reality. Verse 9 says, in this, in this marriage, in this covenant of marriage, and including within this physical sexual relationship, God does a miraculous or a mysterious work in joining people together, not just physically, but more than just physically, emotionally, even spiritually. In marriage, God is making two people one. Guys, there's something deeply spiritual about human sexuality. Because it's God's design or part of God's design for joining people together in such a deeply spiritual way that in his eyes, they are a new creation, no longer two, but one in the Lord. And that is why sexual sin is so damaging to marriage. It destroys the covenant of marriage Because that truth about sexuality, of the union, of this mysterious union, it actually brings another person into the marriage. So it destroys the covenant of marriage because it's adding more people to the marriage. And our culture is distorting our idea of sexuality by acting like sexual sin is no big deal. That it's only natural. That it can even sometimes be included in type, in in, quote, healthy marriages. And Jesus says this sin is so serious that it's the actually only acceptable grounds for pursuing divorce. Matthew includes a phrase. That Mark leaves out in those last verses in our text. Matthew 19.9 says it this way. I say to you, whoever divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another commits adultery. That word sexual immorality translates the Greek word porneia. That word is a designation for sexual sin in general. Sometimes it's used in the New Testament to describe sex before marriage. Sometimes it refers to prostitution. It's a broad designation for various types of sexual sin. And I believe that Jesus is saying there in Matthew 19 that sexual immorality is grounds for divorce because sexuality or sexual immorality inherently joins people together. And when you join other people to your marriage, you've destroyed God's design for oneness in marriage. And I take him to be saying then, in that case of sexual immorality, divorce isn't what breaks the oneness of marriage. Immorality does. Now listen, and I want to be clear on this. Jesus isn't commanding people to get divorced if there's some form of sexual immorality. Because Jesus is able to forgive and restore marriages where there is genuine repentance. We've already prayed for this and we, we trust in this. We want to live in this. His resurrection power is stronger than sin. Any sin, including sexual immorality and the damage done to it. And including wrongful divorce. Because I know a sermon like this can bring a lot of shame to people as they look back over their stories. Now that they're on their second or even sometimes third marriages. And in his grace and resurrection power is 
us stronger to forgive and restore even unbiblical marriage and remarriage. He's a redeemer and a restorer. So don't misconstrue that Jesus is commanding divorce here. He's not. He is simply saying that there's an allowance because of the hardness of hearts for divorce with sexual immorality. And listen, I know there's a lot that I could say. I just want to say this before I move on. I know there are a lot of questions that we could ask about this. And I know a lot of the details would take us weeks to try and work through. Here's what I would pray we would have as a takeaway. I pray that the Holy Spirit would do a work in every heart gathered here this morning to declare war against sexual sin in our lives. Because it is destroying marriage in our country. And it is destroying marriage even in this room. And may the Holy Spirit strengthen our resolve to trust in Jesus and his liberating power to free us from every expression of sexual sin. May we pursue God's design for oneness in marriage by purifying our lives by his grace and Christ being Christ living in us purified from every form of sin that would destroy our lives. His design is for oneness And that includes physical expressions of oneness, including sexuality, but not limited to it. As a matter of fact, there are other things that inhibit oneness in marriage. And we should should reject those as well. Notice how verse 7 alludes to this. Verse 7 says, Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife. Part of the physical reality of oneness is that a man would leave the care and household of his parents and a woman would do the same so that they can hold fast to one another and exemplify their oneness in the Lord. That phrase, hold fast, it means to cling to something. It literally means to be glued together. So at the most basic level, it simply means that husbands and wives They're called to do life together and cling to one another. Guys, that's actually why you knew at the beginning of my message that that joke was a joke. Because you knew that successful marriage isn't predicated on doing life apart from your spouse. You live together. And I know that there are sometimes extenuating circumstances or situations that prevent this. I I spoke to a couple this morning who has just now been able to be reunited after a long period of separation physically that was beyond their control, living in different nations. And they're grateful to be together. Their desire was to live together because God's design is that normative marriage would include living together, spending time together, making decisions together, raising a family together. You know what that means? That togetherness should cause us to become laser-focused on things that would cause us to drift apart. You resist letting your work come between you. Your parents come between you. Your parents come between you. Sorry, I said that was right. You resist letting your friends come between you. Your children come between you. Your hobbies come between you. You go on dates Even if those dates, for Emily and I for years, our dates consisted of me getting takeout Chinese food and putting the kids to bed and sitting on the couch and talking for an hour before we both fell asleep. And that's sometimes the best you can do for a date. And husbands, you talk about your emotions and your feelings and your hopes and your fears. 
And after your wife faints and regains consciousness because you shared your feelings with her, you invite her to do the same and listen while she speaks. You endeavor to meet each other's needs because you're their person and they're yours. You don't become roommates who raise the same kids but barely know one another anymore. You don't settle for the kind of life where you sit in the same room while you separately scroll through your phones and call that a healthy marriage. God's design for marriage is oneness. And that includes pursuing intimacy with your spouse in a way that you don't have intimacy with anyone else in this world. And living separate, independent lives is a cultural distortion of marriage that Christ calls us to reject. Pursue God's design by pursuing intimacy on every level with one another. So my question is this, is there anyone or anything that's coming between you and your spouse? And if you're not sure, I encourage you to do this. Ask your spouse if they feel like there's anything in your life or anyone in your life who makes them feel distanced or disconnected or distracted from you. God's design for marriage is oneness. And let's close with this final one in just a few moments. Marriage is designed to reflect Jesus and his church. Now, this isn't explicit in our text, but it's definitely here. Ephesians chapter 5, verse 31 and 32 says this Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. You recognize that? Same exact thing that Jesus says in our text. But Paul then expounds by saying this This mystery is profound, and I'm saying that it refers to Christ. And the church. The word mystery in the Bible isn't used the same way that we use the word mystery. We think of a mystery as something that's difficult or impossible to understand. And that's partly embedded in how the Bible uses the word mystery. But mystery in the Bible refers to something that was previously not known that has now been made known. And what Paul is saying is that for all of human history, there was something that wasn't known by anyone on earth but was known in the mind of God about marriage. Namely, that God designed marriage to reflect the relationship he always intended Jesus to have with his people. Guys, there is no doubt in my mind that when Jesus is teaching in this setting, he knows that. He knows he has come to fulfill this this relationship, the one that marriage was created to represent. He knows that marriage is designed to display something that's already in his heart, his love and his commitment, his willingness to lay down his own life as a sacrifice for sin to restore the people that he loves. That's in his heart right here. That's what's causing him to go to Jerusalem. He is the husband of a bride who loves her and he knows That when the question comes up about divorce, his answer must reflect his heart. Because marriage is a picture of Christ and his people. And he's strong in his response. Why? Because he knows he will never leave or forsake his bride. So his people should never be flippant or casual about marriage or divorce or the sin that would cause it. And there are two really important implications that I just want to close on with that truth in mind. Number one, if you're single and you've been sitting here thinking, what in the world does this have to do with me? Here's what it has to do with you. 
You can have the reality of marriage even if you aren't married. You can be united with Jesus if you will trust in him. You can experience oneness and intimacy. You can go through life and do life together with Jesus. You can be loved by Jesus. You can be known by Jesus. You can be pursued by Jesus. You can be carried in your weakness by Jesus. You can be loved in a way forever that you would never be separated from Jesus. And listen, even if you never get married, you can still have all of the fulfillment and the joy that comes from being married to Christ. Guys, single people are not second-class citizens in the church or the kingdom of heaven. Jesus loves you, and he gave his life for you, and he wants to do life with you, living in you with oneness and intimacy and power if you will trust in him. So single people rejoice in a sermon on marriage because it's just a picture of your reality in Christ. Number two, if you are married, you can only live out the complete picture of marriage by experiencing the reality of marriage with Jesus. Here's what I mean by that. You need Christ to live in you if you are going to live out God's design for marriage. So the worst thing that you would do is roll up your sleeves and by your own power, fix your marriage. You can't do that. Ask your spouse. They'll tell you. You can't fix what's broken in your marriage. That's why you need Jesus. So cultivate a relationship with Jesus. Pursue intimacy with Jesus. Pursue intimacy with Jesus with your spouse. Pray with one another. Grow in faith with one another. Grow in love toward Jesus with one another. Jesus not only supplies the pattern for marriage, Jesus supplies the power for marriage by giving you resurrection power as you trust in him. And so as a culture has attacked and distorted in sinful hard-heartedness God's design and desire for marriage. May we, as followers of Jesus Christ, hear the words of our Lord and our Savior. Stop fixating on what God would allow in your marriage. And start by faith pursuing what God desires for it and look to Jesus to give you power to do what God desires. Would you bow your heads? Let's make our prayer this morning. And perhaps you've never placed your faith and trust in Jesus. Maybe you're not in a love relationship with Jesus right now. I want to encourage you Don't do another thing. Don't move into another place without calling on Jesus to be your Lord and Savior. Jesus came out of love to give his life for you. And by faith, would you trust that Jesus lived the perfect life you have failed to live and that he died the death you should have died as a payment for your sin as he hung on that cross And that he rose again three days later so that he could raise you up to a brand new life. Would you believe that? And in faith, just pray, Jesus, I believe. I believe you. And I'm going to trust in you and you alone to save me and make me 
a new man, a new woman, a child of God. Let's call on Jesus claiming that promise that he will save those who call on him. For those of you who are trusting in Jesus, would you, would you ask the Holy Spirit to stir your heart to pursue God's good design and marriage? Pray for your marriage. Pray for the marriages of those in this room, those in this life that you know. And ask for the Holy Spirit to do a powerful work and the husbands and wives around us. And would you give thanks that Jesus is a forgiving redeemer for those who trust in him who have failed to live out God's design for marriage. That he forgives and redeems and restores those whose stories make them feel like they're drowning in guilt at a sermon like this. Thank you, Jesus, that you redeem and forgive and provide a brand new start for those who look to you. Lord, I praise you for Jesus. And I thank you that he is strong and clear and straightforward in his response to trick questions. Thank you that he teaches us and answers questions that we aren't even asking. And Lord, I pray that you would help us to have his heart. Lord, his heart that would lay aside the cultural distortions about marriage and even some of the cultural distortions in cultural Christianity about marriage. Lord, I thank you for Jesus And I pray that, Father, our hearts would not trust in our ability to do it all right or our record as though we've done it all right, but help our hearts to trust in Jesus, that by his grace and your provision of grace, you enable us to be forgiven and restored. You allow us to live as new men and new women with new starts in Jesus Christ and help us look to Jesus as he leads us by your spirit. Restore us today in every broken place. Be glorified in us, in your every work. And we ask all of these things in Jesus' name. Amen.